It's nice to be with you guys. We are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. If you are just joining us, let me catch you up. Jesus is greater than everything. All right? So that is the series, and I'm excited to be with you in this sermon. While I've written it, I plan to speak normally and not as fast as I want to, even though as soon as this service is over, I'm going on a vacation with just my wife. Woohoo! Uh, but with that, Uh, Last week, the writer explained just how great Jesus is in contrast to the angelic. And while it seemed to address angels, it was really about God the Son being greater and above all created entities. Today, the writer continues a little with that contrast, but the writer of Hebrews spends even more time pointing to what the Old Testament says about God's Son and the adoption that comes from trusting Him. Today, we're going to study how important it is to understand that Jesus is not just a good man, not just a good teacher, not just a really good prophet, but the $64,000 question, that's a reference for some of you, is, is Jesus Lord of all? Is Jesus Lord of all? And if Jesus is Lord of all, there is a response from those who see him as Lord of all, which is worship and exaltation and praise. And today is not about worship music. Today is about understanding the worth in which Jesus is to his creation. So in Christ's preeminence, how important he is, many would say that Christ is Lord, but the real question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Like, is he yours? Not your parents, not your community, not your posse, not your crew, not your spouse, not your best friend, not your siblings, or your household, but is he your Lord personally? Is he Lord over you? Martin Luther, the theologian who's known as the catalyst to the Reformation, over 500 years ago said this, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. And so I begin with this question, is he your Lord, simply because the answer to that question will determine how you read the very first thing that we will study today in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 1. And I think the writer of Hebrews gives application for if you possess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord based on what he says in this first verse. Here's what he says. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so we do not drift away. For the audience of this letter, the Jewish Christians, it was very possible that even though the beginning of this letter was making the point that the Son is greater, he's greater than angels, that the Son is the Word, and it all is from him and is him, the Hebraic believers could easily default back to the religion of their past, They could forget all about how Jesus, God the Son, fulfilled what was written. And they could even ignore this as a result. This is why the writer stresses paying attention. Now, paying attention does not just mean we hear it and forget. Anyone who has ever had a child or a grandchild or been around a child or maybe even been a child, I think that covers all of us, knows the difference between hearing and listening. A person who sees Jesus as their Savior and Lord pays attention to what is written in the text. So much so that hearing it as if being in the room when a sound is made is is all that is meant to hear the truth of the word 
It's not that. Rather, it's not simply to just hear it, but to listen to it. And James says that we shouldn't just even listen to it, but we should actually do something with it. James 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So it's almost like there are three stages to the truth of the word. You hear it like a kid playing on their phone while you tell them to do chores. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. That is kind of the way some of us hear the word. We wake up, we get dressed, we do all the things required of us to be presentable to the world. Well done, everyone. And then we drive, or we ride, or we walk to church, and we sit in the pews, and the word is then read. We are reading it to you, and it's taught, and it's expounded upon. And then we, those of us who care, have a responsibility that I think perhaps we either don't know, or maybe even if we've been following Jesus for a while, have taken for granted. If you hear it, will you listen to it? Like I said about kids, when you tell them something they should do, they may have heard you, but to listen is to actually have some type of change, to acknowledge, to maybe put down their screen, to have their minds changed about what they're currently doing. But our responsibility goes past that. It's not only from hearing, which is passive, it's not just to listening, which is intellectual, but it's to doing, which is active. And that, my friends, is the responsibility of the hearer and why the writer of Hebrews begins with, pay the most careful attention, because to simply hear, and maybe even just listen, but to stiff arm, to reject, to ignore, to disobey, to unsubscribe from what you have heard, actually does something in the person who has refused to do something active with what they hear. It hardens one's heart to God's truth. And I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you come here and you, you just hear it or you just listen, but you don't actually do anything with it. It's actively doing something in you. It's hardening your heart to the truth of the word. And when the writer tells us to pay most careful attention so that we would not drift away, he is warning of probably the biggest problem spiritually that everyone has, to hear and to ignore, to hear and to reject Because that will result in, over time, a hardened heart and one who looks like they have fallen away or drifted away. So let's get practical. We preach Jesus up in here. We point everything to his finished work. We make known week in and week out, Jesus did what we could not do. He made us righteous if we had believed unto him. He gave us right standing before a perfect and holy God. He offers justification in him. It's not our good deeds. It's not our religion. It is all about Jesus and what he has accomplished. And you hear that enough, and you have the opportunity to either receive it daily, to find your identity in Christ's work, to find your identity in who he says that you are. You can be encouraged by this. You can be confident in him and him alone, or you can ignore it. And slowly, over time, Faith becomes something of a distant memory. Not because you once had it, necessarily, and now have lost it, but because the truth has become like white noise to you, which speaks more about how you hear God's truth than if it's true or not. So I'm going to give you an application. I don't normally do this. I don't normally tell you, this is what the text tells you to do, because we're all in different stages of our spiritual growth. But I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to implore you. I'm going to beg you, church. Pay most careful attention to what you hear when the word of God is read. 
And don't merely hear it. Don't just listen and have your mind changed or be reminded. Do something with it. Again, I don't know what your specific application is. We're all in different places in our spiritual growth. But when you read the word, each of us have the opportunity to grow. So don't ignore the word. It will harden your heart. Put it into practice. Because the truth of this word leads not only to wisdom, it leads to Christ-likeness when we put it into practice for the right reasons. All right, let's continue in what the writer intends for his readers to know and do. Verse 2. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Huh. He says, since the message spoken through angels was binding. This is a reference to the law being presented to Moses on Mount Sinai by God, and while angels did not necessarily speak it, God himself did. They were present, and this was something that also was implied in two New Testament writings as well. When Stephen was arrested and was about to be martyred in Acts 7, 37 through 38, he talks about the angels at Mount Sinai. And in Galatians 5, 19, Paul writes about the angels being present. Both these passages refer to angels, and the writer of Hebrews, in the same vein, addresses their presence. But again, as we taught last week, the angels are not the point. The point was that the law was given, and those who broke it received their due punishment. The writer does not give specific examples here, but rather contrasts those who do not keep the law in the Old Testament times, like those who now ignore the gospel and, did not, and do not spe spend special attention to the Son. Because Jesus Christ, God the Son, who provides salvation for all those who believe his gospel of grace, it is in his name that we receive salvation. I believe that is what the writer is pointing out. In the past, people attempted to keep the law by faith. They said, oh, I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to keep this by faith. And now that faith should be and can be completely satisfied in faith directed at and in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul points to, complete, to this complete satisfaction of Jesus' work on behalf of sinners. And just so you know, sinners are you and me. We're sinners. And he speaks entirely, he's speaking to an entirely different audience than the writer of Hebrews, but he points out what is most important to know, remember, and to trust. And he was preaching to a group of the most respected thinkers of the day in the Greek world. Acts 17, Paul, while explaining to them the truth of the gospel, he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. He's talking about Jesus. From one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and histories and boundaries of their lands. God did this so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, Paul says, 
we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent means you change direction. You believe this, you thought this, you were doing this, and now you've changed direction. He commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Before the law was given, God overlooked ignorance to his law. But once the law was given, it showed mankind's inability to be holy on their own and their need for someone a messiah god himself god the son to step in and do for them what they were unable to do themselves which is to be holy as our heavenly father is holy and jesus did it and he sacrificed himself and after he gave evidence or after this he gave evidence he gave proof to everyone how by rising from the dead in which is the ultimate proof of salvation coming to you is to believe the resurrection, to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and then to live accordingly. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, it says in Hebrews 2, 3. The writer says that this salvation, this gospel, was proclaimed by the Lord, which reminds me of Mark chapter 1 when the writer says this, after John, that's John the Baptist, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Good news means gospel. It's gospel. Same word. Good news of God. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. Change direction. Stop doing things your own way. Trust me and believe the good news. The Lord announced this and he provided it and was confirmed by those who heard it, the gospel of salvation, and even saw it. And what is it? The resurrection of Jesus, church. And these witnesses had their lives changed. Jewish people who understood that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and that was confirmed by the fact that he rose from the dead. I personally, I don't know any apostles. Anyone that calls them apostle, themselves an apostle, they're wrong. I don't know anyone who saw Jesus alive after he died personally, but the truth of the gospel shared with me by individuals who had believed before me, that is the message that is confirmed for 2,000 years. I may not be an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection, but I know enough about the evidence and really the reality of the terrible arguments against the resurrection. And I know enough of the evidence that when I believe unto Jesus, it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith at all. I've been an eyewitness to Jesus' work in my own life and many of your lives. And when you realize that God the Holy Spirit is working, the idea of faith seems a lot less like a hopeful guess and a lot more like evidence of God being presented daily in one's life. Verse 4. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The writer seems to imply that his readers have knowledge of what he's communicating here. And I'm pretty sure they had a more complete understanding 
than maybe we do today. But God testified to his gospel through those who saw Jesus alive after he died and proclaimed the message of grace, getting what you don't deserve, who then others heard this message and they believed, but God also would pique people's interest. They'd want to know more about it when his salvation would be testified about through signs and wonders, which were synonymous with one another. And they were to point to the salvation found in no other name but Jesus. Now, Peter and John healed a person who was unable to walk on his own. And Peter, proclaiming about Jesus in Acts 4, says it this way, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is not Jesus and it is not the gospel plus some other stuff. It is not about anything you do. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone giving us salvation through his finished work. Amen and hallelujah. Okay, I'm the only one that feels that way. That's fine. But to point to the only name that salvation comes through is what these signs and wonders were for. And I'd contend that what the writer of Hebrews also was saying about the various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will were to point to the only name that salvation comes through. Paul, the apostle who spoke at Areopagus where he was speaking to the great thinkers, wrote this to the church in Corinth. He said, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So if you believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because the Holy Spirit has made that clear to you. He goes on in verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So instead of getting into the various gifts, I just want to point out that the writer of 1 Corinthians, Paul, also is making the point that the gifts are about, from, and for the gift giver. They're about the gift giver. That's what they're for. So perhaps you personally have believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a spiritual gift that you are aware of. Use it, but use it for the glory of God. And remember who it is for and why God in his grace gave it to you. Now, I want to do something a little bit different. Okay, I said at the beginning of the service, this service is going to be a little bit different. So the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up here. We're not done with the sermon, sorry. Even though I'm very excited about my vacation, I ain't going that short. But I also, right now, if you are able, I just want to invite you to stand with me. Would you stand with me? And in the next few moments, we're going to read from the Bible Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is the, the point that the writer of Hebrews is about to quote over and over. And I want us to read Psalm 8. 
the entire chapter, but it's only nine verses. And I want us to see what the psalmist in this case, David, foresaw and the writer of Hebrews pointed back to. And what we will do is read this chapter, and then after we read the chapter, we will have the opportunity to sing a song that draws its lyrics specifically from this chapter of Scripture in Psalm 8. Now, when they start to sing, if you want to stay standing, great. If you don't, I totally understand. But for reading of the word, we're going to stand. Here's what it says. Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you were mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Verse 7, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Malik, Mike, would you lead us? Again, the writer points out to how the angels were not as important to God as not only the Son, but because of the Son's work on our behalf, even we, mankind, creation, are considered more precious to him. And we will read from Hebrews where different translations use different pronouns, but instead of saying that one is more correct than the other, I think they work together on purpose. Verse 5 of Hebrews 2, it's not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. He's going to quote Psalm 8 where David wrote. He says this in verse, the second half of 6, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. What is mankind that you think about them? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Why are we important to God? All right, don't miss this. Don't go to the restroom. Don't play on your phone for this. This is pretty important. Why are we important to God? The real answer is because we're included in Christ and what Jesus has done if we have believed. This is pointing to Jesus, and we are along for the ride. In Ephesians 2, I don't have the verse, but in 5 and 6, it says, It is by grace you have been saved, and God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when the Father looks at you, if you've believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ, he sees his Son. Man, I do some stupid things. I don't want God seeing that. Am I by myself on this? I do some stupid things, and yet when the Father looks at me, he sees Jesus. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf was enough. God, in his perfect plan, created all things, and the original plan for his creation was to be subject under mankind. We were to rule over the rest of creation, but sin entered into the fray, and this original opportunity was fractured. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, 
we read, God said, let us make mankind in our image. I'm going to go Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then second part of verse 8 of Hebrews 2, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present... We do not see everything subject to them. And here, the writer of Hebrews points out the very obvious problem. Creation is not subject to us. It is not subject to mankind. And John Piper, a very nasally preacher and a very smart preacher, puts it this way, and I'm not going to play the clip because it's too nasally for me, but here's what he says. First, the writer tells us to be alert and careful when it comes to treasuring our great salvation. Then, talking about this passage, second, he says the reason he says it is so great and valuable is that in the age to come, God has promised to subject the whole creation to his people, the saved people, the redeemed people, not to angels. That hope is part of our great salvation, that someday those who have held fast to their great salvation will be revealed as the sons and daughters of God, and all creation will serve them rather than ravage them the way it does now. They will be victorious over the natural world rather than victims of its floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and diseases and death. But then he says, very realistically, in the third place, wherever you look in the world today, that is not what you see at the end of verse 8. All things are not subject to man. Psalm 8 is not now fulfilled in us. On the contrary, man is subject to creation in dreadful ways. We try to persuade ourselves that we are masters of our fate and that since we can make this was a few years back, we can make airplanes and radios and televisions and computers and cellular phones and lasers and antibiotics and artificial heart valves and pacemakers and fertilizers and corneas, that we are indeed now the rulers of creation, that all things are subjected to us now. Remember, John Piper says this, there are many problems with this persuasion. The most glaring one, the one that concerns the writer of Hebrews most, is death. Whatever we have been able to conquer as human beings, we have not conquered death. It triumphs everywhere. It strikes babies and teenagers and young adults and midlifers and older people. It scoffs at our medicines and surgeries and diets and vitamins and exercise programs. When all is said and done, rocket scientists die, politicians die. Doctors die, professors die, Nobel Peace Prize winners die, the rich die, the poor die, the good die, the evil die, farmers die, bankers die, carpenters die, computer programmers die, and preachers die. Death is not subject to man, and therefore nothing is ultimately subject to us, because it's only a matter of time till it will all be taken from us. 
and what we thought we had mastered will be ripped out of our hands. That's what this writer is painfully aware of at the end of verse 8. The psalm says that man has a great destiny as the ruler of creation. This is part of our great salvation. But the reality is we are not conquerors now. We are but carcasses, all of us. Tell us how you really feel, John. But he's right. And the writer of Hebrews knew this. And we know this. There is no one in this room that believes they're going to live forever without the intervention of God. And because of this, we are not rulers of creation because nothing in creation does not decay or deteriorate. But there is more. There is some good news. There's always some really good buts in the Bible. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. I'll get to that now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, God the Son, who took on flesh, that's what it means that he was made lower than the angels for a little while. Jesus, who gave up some of his rights He's not only fully God, but he's also fully man who walked among his creation. He is crowned with glory and honor through his death that we, church, may find life. In other words, we don't see Psalm 8 fulfilled in ourselves, but we see Psalm 8 fulfilled in Jesus. We are still subject to death and all kinds of weaknesses and problems, but Jesus has now passed through weakness and death and is crowned with glory and honor. He is seated in power at the right hand of God the Father, and all his enemies are subjected to him as a footstool at his feet. Christ was the first man to be restored to magnificent destiny of Psalm 8. He was crowned with glory and honor over creation, but he does not enter into that glory by himself, church. Verse 10 says that he is bringing many sons and daughters to glory, the glory of Psalm 8. Our great salvation is that united to Jesus, we will experience the fulfillment of Psalm 8 as well. Jesus is the great forerunner of our salvation. What has happened to him will happen to us because he tasted death for us we can be sure that we will share in his rule over creation. See, the first man, Adam, sinned and was subjected to futility and death. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, defeated death and restored the hope Psalm 8 had for all who are in him. You Christians who do, please do not neglect this great salvation because you will reign with Christ, not because you're a God, but because of what Jesus has done. And all things will one day be put in subjection to us. All things will serve our greater good. All things without any mixture of pain or sorrow or regret will manifest the glory of God to you and through you as you rule with Christ. But that doesn't make you part of the Trinity. It's because of big brother Jesus that any of us can rule alongside him. Let me give you a hermeneutic. We're really big on how we interpret the Bible because people can take the Bible and make it say some really whack things, all right? Here's a big hermeneutic. It's a pretty important one. I'd recommend this whenever we're reading any of the Bible, but especially when it's quoting Old Testament and especially when it's quoting the Psalms. We hold very, very dear when we come to the Scriptures that we hold a very high view of God. So when you read the passage, don't make it about you. Make it about Him. 
So when you read this book, understand that God is higher than anyone, and Jesus is the point. That will help you not read things into the text that the writers were not implying. But none of this is possible. None of, of, Christ, not, none of Psalm 8 being fulfilled is possible or fulfilled without Christ Jesus doing what he did. And Paul the Apostle writes about this. In Philippians chapter 2, he spoke about what eventually became a song in the early church. Philippians 2. Paul said, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Worship team, come on up. I don't want you to miss that in Christ, the great exchange took place. Jesus lived a perfect life, and then he died a sinner's death. We've lived a sinner's life, and we get to be raised up with Jesus. That is unbelievable, but it is the crux of Christianity. It is the crux of our faith. It is the crux because it's all about what Christ has done, not what we accomplish. See, Jesus looked at his creation without any hope of saving themselves. He stepped off of his royal throne. He lived among us, being born of both the Holy Spirit and through a natural woman. He was born, he grew, he lived a perfect life. He then, while speaking the truth and combating self-reliance and justification, stepped into the chasm between mankind and a holy and perfect God. And through Jesus' perfect and holy sacrifice, he tasted death for all who would call on his name. And their justification as their righteousness, Jesus brought salvation through his death and his victorious resurrection. And you and I, when we trust and follow this Savior, this Lord, our Lord, God the Son, we then are forgiven, not because of our goodness, but because of his. So let me end with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May we worship him, not just in song, but with our lives as living sacrifices to the king. May we ascribe worth to Jesus because he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor, and that Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, he is the name that's exalted above every name because he is worthy and holy and righteous. May we worship him above all creation. May we trust and follow him not as a Lord, but as our Lord forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I really believe this. I mean, that, that should go without being said, but Lord, I really do believe that Jesus is it. 
Lord, I remember being so antagonistic towards you when I was a young, younger man and thinking you were just ridiculous. And then I would argue with people from a bunch of different religions, and for some reason, every religion had to do something with Jesus. And that made me realize that, man, maybe there's something to this Jesus. And Lord, when I spent time in the Word, when I spent time in history, when I looked at what happened that first, in that first century in Jerusalem and how that entire culture changed almost overnight, Lord, the only answer that makes any sense to me is that, Jesus, you rose from the dead. And so, God, I pray that we'd be a people that would worship you. Not sing songs necessarily, not raise our hands, not bring attention upon ourselves, but we would worship you by pointing people to you and we would obey you and we would put into practice what you're saying because what you're saying leads to life. God, thank you for doing for me and for many of us in this room what we could not do for ourselves. God, you are so good and we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.